listening to JR Out Loud, the podcast for Jewish Renaissance magazine, offering a fresh perspective on Jewish culture. I'm Judy Herman, the host of this podcast, and Ben Brown, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you to talk about your play, The End of the Night, a drama set at the end of World War II seems strangely timely in the light of Russia's current hostilities towards Ukraine. Well, I mean, of course, uh, of course, I would rather there was no war in Ukraine. <laughs> you know, the, I wrote the play a few years ago, actually. We had a reading at JW3 in 2019, long before all of this, of course. So the play did not, has not changed at all in the light of current events. So, but obviously, if, if people, if that enriches their experience, I suppose that's a a good thing uh, from, a, from a dramatic point of view. Well, I think it does. I mean, I just couldn't believe it, really. It seems so extraordinarily timely. But at the same time, we want to concentrate on then. But you know, it is a world leader, another world leader being paranoid about the Jews. It's the same thing that's happened before, isn't it? Um, the other thing I wanted to just talk about before we sort of go yeah. full tilt into this play is... You'll have seen from my review that you're my go-to man now for drama about <laughs> the, the room where it happens, to quote Hamilton. So it's nice I, yeah, yeah, it's just fun, really, really interesting your choices of subject, and they are mm. quite twentieth century. They are the sort of things where there is documentation and, yes. and history around them. So could you just talk a little bit about how you're attracted to these sorts of meetings and probably during the last century mainly, I think. And uh... yeah, yes. Well it's it's I used to actually when I when I first my first couple of plays were um purely fictional plays, but then it started really writing plays on real events where I wrote a play about Philip Larkin, the poet, and I read Andrew Motion's biography and found how these three women in his life all, all met for the first time really on his deathbed, which was quite dramatic. And he was such an interesting character. And so I suppose, and, and that play went well. But then I suppose these more political plays mm. we're talking about. I am, written yes. in the mm. century. Well, the first one of those, yes, was the, the promise about the Balfour Declaration. And I just was sort of reading, uh, uh, interested in the subject of uh, Israel and Palestine. And I just, the first book I picked up, I remember, saying how Edwin Montague and Herbert Samuel who were both the first two ever practicing Jewish cabinet ministers, were cousins. And in fact, they were actually brought up together because uh, Edmund uh, Montague's father had died. And, and they were cabinet ministers, but totally opposed about Israel or about the, the national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, as, as it was then. And so I, I got into that, and that became my first play, really a political sort of play. Uh, although in quite a few rooms, that one, that's not a one set play. It yes, took place over some years. So, so I suppose that's sort of, once, once you, I think about history, it's like you sort of pull on a thread, isn't it? Because once you, once you start getting into history, while you're doing your research and politics and, you know, you kind of find out all these, they get to know all these other characters and all these other sort of leads and kind of one thing sort of leads to another and you suddenly... Later on, I suppose it's, it's not so much that I immediately then jump to another idea, but later on, when I read something uh, about something else, in, or in, in, for example, in, about uh, Churchill and how 
that the cabinet had actually, how they very nearly sued for peace with uh, Hitler in 19, May 1940, and, you know, how close that was. And so but because you've written these other plays, you sort of, you start to kind of, I don't know, come into this territory. And, uh, and it's, so, it's so fascinating to me, these real characters and these real moments of history, when just it, things were on a knife edge and they could have gone the other way with very, you know, different and often disastrous results that, you know, that I've been drawn to, to, to the, these subjects. I've been always sort of interested, I suppose, in history and politics, but I'm really interested in drama and character. And there's a lot of that in history. Yeah, isn't there just, though? Yes. <laughs> I await with interest your play about Nero, then, for example. It's always going to be... Nero? <laughs> Well, you said uh, you said history. I'm thinking ancient history realm. Or... Oh, I see. Yes. <laughs> well, I've never, as you said, I've never gone to ancient history, which are very, very hard to write plays about. But although I am interested to see that Howard Brenton's written this play called Cancelling Socrates, which is going to be coming up at the German Street Theatre in London in mm. June, where my last play last year was, in fact, a splinter of ice about Kim Philby and Graham Greene. So yes. Oh, I'll yes, be... yes, splinter of ice. But the ones with the politicians are really mm. interesting because in a way this is like the other side of the coin from your Churchill play, isn't it? That those very uneasy days at the end of the war when it almost could have gone mm. either way. And this is it they are related, aren't they, in a way, I suppose. Well I suppose so. I mean given that my play about the Balfour Declaration, obviously having a Jewish theme and because it was a particularly a play really about Anglo Jewish history and mm. the defining moment of Anglo Jewish history. And so uh, the Jewish aspect of it. And then, of course, as you say, I wrote this play about the beginning of the Second World War, or 1940. And then this play is about the end of the mm. Second World War, yes. also with a, a crucial Jewish aspect and theme. So I suppose it's a sort of, it almost feels like it's a sort of synthesis of those two earlier plays in terms of its interests. Yeah, totally. Well, before we leave those, just to say, so I gather from... One sentence on Wiki says, just your father is Jewish, but possibly not your mother then? Were you brought up exactly, that? yeah. that's right, yeah. yes. Yeah, but not... which was that, yes, mm. sorry, kind of. So not... Well, that was the same, the same position as I've commented as, as Edwin Montague and Venetia Stanley, where in, in my play, earlier play, The Promise. <laughs> yes. yes. So no, it's a, a, a product of a mixed marriage, and I didn't have a, a, a especially Jewish upbringing. Mm. But uh, obviously, half my my family and, and friends really were. Yes, well, I'm a very um, avowed and dedicated liberal Jew, so from where yeah. I stand, you're Jewish and that's that. You know, we we, re we yes. totally recognise patrilineal Jews. <laughs> right. Um, well, yes, and my uncle as well, who's very much a, a sort of keen member of the liberal Jewish synagogue in St John's Wood. Oh, lovely, yes. So, in fact, my brother just took him for lunch there last week. He was the president of the Jewish Historical Society of England. Mm. And he, he wrote all these articles. Uh, and so I think he really, particularly, I'm sure, had an influence on my interest in Jewish history. Mm. His name is Ma Malcolm Brown. Oh, so Malcolm Brown. I was going to go and look Malcolm him up. Brown. He's still, yeah, he's, and, he's, and so, yes, he was very much involved mm. in the Jewish history. Yes. I think Lily Montague, who partly founded that, that synagogue in St. John's Wood, she was actually the sister of Edwin Montague, who was the central character, really, in The Promise. Of course, of course. Oh, we've got a tangled yeah. web we weave here. It's yeah. fantastic. It's really, it is actually, isn't it? It is fascinating. Mm. Um, it's the way things they kind of fit together and come back, mm. you know, the connections. Yeah. Mm. I have got this concept that you might go and mediate with Putin because. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I'd, I'd, 
I don't have don't know any skills that I have in, in that direction. Mm, and, well. and I you know I I um I really hope I'm not going to disappoint you as well by being reluctant to talk too much about uh the current situation but just because I I think I just uh, I don't know I have this thing I'd like to sort of mostly talk about things which I I know something about and which is with just the plays that I've written which I spent all this time. Mm. And so you know of course there'll be similarities and differences. But it's something I feel I feel very unqualified. You would be just as good, if not better, at me <laughs> drawing out the parallels between the current the current situation. Of course, there are some obvious mm. ones, but I can go I can go back to that anyway. Yeah. No, don't worry. I just thought we'd get that one out of the way first, rather yeah, than no, yeah, working well, up towards it. <laughs> I mean, if you want to, I can. I mean, of course, this is the biggest land war in Europe, or the biggest war since the events of the play, which is the very end of the war in 1945. So. As you say, is startling, and of course, the, the the claim Putin is claiming, isn't he, that it's a continuation of that war in that, you know, it, it, you know, which uh, yeah, it's, it doesn't strike everyone as totally plausible. No, or anyone much really, unless they happen to be uh, being spoon-fed stuff in Russia. Anyway, we did say we wouldn't uh, go too much on it, although but Russia does come up a fair few times. So. Um, <laughs> So going back to the play, it's almost stupid to ask what drew you to the story, but how did you find it? Let's say, and also, could you summarise it from your point of view? You know, the... Yes, it began a few years ago. I was simply glancing at a newspaper, I think it was a book review, and there was a throwaway reference to the fact that Himmler had had a masseur who persuaded him to meet and negotiate the Jews. And it was just that line, that was it. And then it continued with whatever the subject was about. And I wrote that down. That just made me curious because I, as I, I knew quite a lot about the Second World War, you know, reasonable amounts about the Holocaust. And I'd never heard of Himmler, you know, the actual architect of the Holocaust, in charge of the final solution, all of that, having direct meeting with Jews at the end of the war. And so this really startled me. And so I eventually uh, looked this up online or something and found out the name of Himmler's Messer Felix Kirsten and found that he had written a book, some memoirs in 1956. And so I got hold of, of this and towards the end of that discovered uh, you know, his description of how he had brought April the 19th, I think it was, he had brought a, a Swedish Jew who was a sort of stand-in representative of the World Jewish Congress in Sweden to, he'd flown him secretly to Berlin to have this secret meeting with Himmler in his in Felix Kirsten's Dr. Felix Kirsten's hunting lodge north of Berlin to discuss this question of trying to get people released from the concentration camps, contrary to Hitler's order that no Jew should survive the regime. So, and I just immediately thought, well, how fascinating, you know, that, that what obviously just in dramatic terms, this incredible conflict that and uh, the, the lives at stake. And then I discovered that uh, Norbert Mazur, the Swedish Jew, had himself written an account of this meeting as soon as he got back to Stockholm. And I found that that was actually translated into English by his nephew 48 years later in 1993, uh, which is lodged with the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. And that, that was available online. So I I read it. I mean, it's, it's freely available, and, and and much of what is in that appears in the play. <laughs> so uh, it was, you know, startling to me, and I immediately wanted to try and make it into a play. 
Yeah, it, it's sort of like a gift, isn't it, to actually find that as well? You must have really thought you were destined to write this when you find it was all both sides. Exactly. And in fact, there's another account of the meeting by Himmler's head of foreign intelligence uh, called Walter Schellenberg. So, yes, there was plenty of evidence for the meeting and what was said and, and so forth, which with a subject as sort of sensitive and controversial and delicate as this, you kind of, well, I personally wanted to feel that it had basis in reality, a strong basis, you know. Obviously, there were, you know, everything that happened and everything that was said, but yes, you know, it was definitely one of those very rare moments that only happens, sadly, every few years when you just think, gosh, I really do want to write a play about this and put this on stage because I think it's to hopefully interest people, other people as much as it interests me. Yeah, oh, totally. I mean, there was the stars aligning for you, I think. And it's a story that sort of needed telling, I think. Also, I, th I think. Now, there are actually five characters in the play. Mm. Obviously, there is this very ebullient, colourful character of Kirsten the Masseur. It actually yes. says somewhere, I've read that he was quite a big man and you, you kind of kept to that. That he There's a thread running through it of food. How the actors manage every night to look excited <laughs> about whatever soup they're having, I don't know. But there's an awful lot of eating goes on and a tiny bit of drinking. Yeah. I mean, I want to talk about the, the women for a moment as well, but you obviously have this idea about food being very important. Yes, no, well, well, it's true that Kirsten had... Uh brought these pastries from uh, oh. Stockholm, you know, mm. to sort of, I suppose, to get Himmler in a good mood, I suppose, was the, was the aim, you know, with these sort of delicacies that were, weren't available in Germany at the very end of the war. And, but also they arrived very late at night. Mm. So I have some soup because they weren't going to be eating on their journey, mm. on their postal flight from Stockholm, just with the, with the only passengers to, to mm. uh, Berlin or with the hours in the car, in the dark, through bombed-out streets to drive the 50 miles. So I felt they'd be pretty hungry. So it was really just sort of part of the naturalism of it, really, I just thought. And then the next morning... It, and so, yes, so I, I'm sure that they, they all cursed me for all the props, but when I, <laughs> I don't usually have many props like that. But it seemed necessary in this play to have... Because, of course, they're basically waiting as well for mm. him to arrive. Yeah. You know, and they, they have to wait at least more than 24 hours, in fact, about 26 hours, I think it is, but... And during that time, when people are together, when you're waiting, you tend to be doing some eating as well, don't you, or drinking? I just thought it was really funny. I was, uh, I was trying to look at... It was very mean of me, but I'm actually looking at Ben Kaplan, who who plays Masur so brilliantly, with the soup, and trying to make out whether he was acting... I'm not quite sure whether I want the soup, actually enjoying it or what. That's very mean of me. He's not here to ask. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, actually, I'd like to know who's making the soup, and is it nice? <laughs> Well, I hope so. I hope so. I haven't actually asked. <laughs> but, you should... but yes, he doesn't, of course, because he's so nervous. I don't think he, yes, I... he, he understandably nervous. <laughs> he doesn't. He, I don't mean the actor. I mean the character. No, no, no I know you just so, must so, be so nervous that he doesn't. That of course, I don't, he doesn't eat much anyway. It, yeah, it wouldn't matter actually, would it? So, what about this wonderful housekeeper, this ma maker of soup, Elizabeth? Is she a real person? Or yeah, she... Elizabeth Luba. She mm. is a real person. She was Kirsten's sort of long-standing housekeeper and she had been his secretary as well I think at some point as well but she was and he originally met her yes 23 years before or in the in the early 20s when he'd first arrived in Berlin and, and was becoming a physiotherapist and he'd, he'd lodged in her in the house of her parents who have since died so he'd sort of got to know her you know she'd sort of been looking after him really as she says for all this time 
There's a lovely relationship between Michael Lumsden, Kirsten, and and Audrey Palmer's uh, Elizabeth. She she really is the part. They're all terrific, Minerva. But she mm. does, she does, she absolutely because it's not a not a huge part, but she absolutely brings it to life and the, the, and the sort of warmth, but also her own fear, really, as you mm. can imagine, with the with the with the Russians just miles away. Yes, uh, I think. For her own safety, yeah. Yeah, that really does come over, doesn't it? Um, but no, I, I, I'm be, sort of believe in her as maker of soup. As I saw, Good, so. yeah. And then, now, the other character doesn't appear for very long. Livia Bernstone plays Jeanne Bomagin. Shall I pronounce yes. this correctly? Now, is that a real person? A real. Person? It is a real person. Mm. Essentially, um, Sarah Helm, uh, the journalist, wrote a, a very a sort of exhaustive book about testimonies from Ravensbrook called "If This Is." a woman and a 700 page book with everything she could find and all the people she could meet and talk to and uh, about and testimony from Ravensbrook. And in that I found just a reference and a brief bit from this woman, uh, Jean Bonjean. I then though found, looked at the, found the source of that, which was in the Imperial War Museum archives. So I went to there and in fact, just after the war, she had written a whole account, unpublished herself of, of, of her experiences in Ravensbrook and at the getting out as well. So yeah. it's very much drawn from her, her real testimony. She was Dutch, actually. She was, she yeah, was, I yeah. sort of guessed that. It sounded like a Dutch name. But it, that, again, that just one tiny moment to go back to the current situation, it did resonate because I thought of all the longed for any vehicle at all, a Red Cross vehicle that might help yeah. people trying to get out of Mariupol. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, yes, she's as you say, desperate to, to get out there and not, not daring to hope that it's going to happen this time because of other rumours. Exactly. And absolute joy of when she does get out, when, you know, when, as you say, when the Red Cross... I hope we're not spoiling the play for anyone who hasn't seen it, but anyway... I think yes. so, no. Oh, dear. Oh, well, I didn't mean to, but anyway, look, it, you know, I, <laughs> to me, it's a tiny part. She does it beautifully and it resonates, so I think it's important. Yes, good, and she does mm. as well. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it must be hard work sitting backstage waiting to go on, but... It is, it is hard, but in some ways, though, it's almost the most important speech in the play, really, as well. So, I agree, totally uh, agree. Uh, and also, what a great name for a book if this is a woman. Isn't that good? Based on Prima yes, this is this a man. Yeah. Fantastic, really. So, you know, it's, it's just all there. And it's all also, um, I mean, Alan Strachan directs it. He, it, it uh, I said discreet in my review because it feels that way. It feels as if he allows it to mm. happen in the room. He does. Well, he's directed, this is the sixth play that we've done together mm. in 26 years. Which he, we've been, and so he's um, he's directed all my plays since you know I was in my you know, gosh twenties. <laughs> so he's and he he's a very experienced director, and you know he's done yeah. hundreds of plays, and, and is a wonderful director of new playwrights as well or new plays. Mm. And he is, as you say, he's someone who's absolutely. It's it's not at all about him. It's just about serving, you know, the actors and the play, uh, and he's done it. Uh, a, a very good job in that way. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. It's it's a very good team, and I and again, I sort of like this big airy room, but wondering what's outside. There are clearly bombardments happening not that far away, and we know. Again, yeah, that's absolutely. Well, they they literally were hearing the sounds of the airplanes and the bombs, and this is very much in their own accounts as well, mm. uh, because the Russians are just about to launch their attack on Berlin and are. Mm. Well, art and do it, you know, during the course of the play. And 
fortunately, we had the most terrific sound and lighting designers for this. In fact, I don't know if you saw, there was a wonderful production some years ago of Journey's End with David Haig in the First World War oh, play. Oh, yes, I did, and I did. It was so good. And they, well, we had the same lighting designer and sound designer. Oh, go on, Because they won lots of awards and Tonys mm. and things like this. And we were so, so, so thrilled mm. to have the same the same lighting and uh, Gregory Clark and Jason Taylor who, who did that journey's end. And so they really, I think in terms of giving that kind of atmosphere of the, of the war, they, you know, they, they did a brilliant job. Yeah, I didn't name them in my actual review, mm -hmm. so I'm incredibly pleased that you've named them now because, yeah, <laughs> they were very important. I mean, it was just, it was a beautiful whole. It was a sort of seamless, mm. a, seam, a seamless whole, which I, I always think is very mm. important. You don't want to think, find yourself thinking about it. You just want it to happen. Yeah, yeah. no, they really good. Yeah. What I found incredibly interesting, and I suppose upsetting as a Jew myself, and you know, having lived with all this stuff for so many, you know, well, all my life really, is seeing that these constant, insidious references in Himmler's self-justification Absolutely mm. terrifying. And it starts with that radio broadcast. You actually mm. have them sitting listening to the quite long radio broadcast. I wanted to ask you, is that a real one, that word for word? Again, it's, it is a real. It's Goebbels. Uh, because the play, oh, when Himmler arrived, sorry. he came straight up from Goebbels'... Uh, Apologies, it's Goebbels on the radio, isn't it? It's Goebbels on the radio, yeah, and yeah. it's Hitler's last birthday. Mm, and because yeah. every, every, whenever it was Hitler's birthday, Goebbels made a radio broadcast, mm. a birthday broadcast, and that they listened to. And yes, he, which he's obviously still trying to put a positive spin, even though they're clearly about to lose the war and are in the bunker. And but and Himmler's just come from this bunker. Yes, that is a, a kind of edited version of the actual broadcast that he did make. Although uh, it, it trimmed it a bit, it might trim it a bit more even. <laughs> but yes, it does give it does give you that picture of of, of the kind of you know the kind of thinking. You know the, the 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 kind of loyalty to Hitler, the anti-Semitism. Mm. It's it's horrible. But having said that, of course, it's not as horrible as the reality of what actually happened. You know, but um, but but it gives you the rhetoric. It tells shows you the kind of mindset that, that Himmler was a part of. Yeah, totally. I and mean, when he comes in, he sort of keeps trying to justify himself, mm -hmm. particularly when he's actually talking to a Jew face to face on equal terms. Probably something he'd never done before. Um, yes, when he's talking, definitely. When he's talking to Mazur, he keeps sounding like he expects him to understand completely. He must see my point of view. Yeah. He was exactly. Yeah. And it, I mean, as Mazur said, it was extraordinary, you know, that he actually he seemed to want to, defend, to defend himself to a Jew, mm. you know, as if, as if he was somehow going to make sort of Mazur, yeah, uh, understand or sympathise. But this is very much based on what Mazur said, Himmler, Himmler's, you know, as soon as he got back to Stockholm, what he wrote down of what Himmler said is extraordinary. But I, and I suppose, though, it was also, I mean, obviously, that was the Nazi line and the Nazi ideology. And this is echoes of the present, claiming that this was a war of self-defence, even. Yes, you know? oh, and, absolutely. Uh, it, yeah, the other thing, you know, I, what, I, absolutely amazing, at the bottom of page 49 in your script, but somewhere in the middle of this scene between Masur and Himmler, which is very, very... Tense, very tense. There's a speech that she makes. Oh, I think we've achieved something rather special tonight, something perhaps unique in the whole war, a meeting of minds between a Jew and a national socialist. Who would have thought it possible? And it's, it so isn't, is it? I mean, that's the most extraordinary speech. Absolutely. Yeah.
Well, of course, of course, as you say, from, from Mazur is having to bite his tongue mm. because he's been so so wants to get the result of getting people released, rather than no doubt strangling Himmler as he'd as he'd like to. Yeah. And uh, but no, it's it, it, it's <laughs> of course, I suppose, from Himmler's point of view as well, he's somehow hoping that because he has this fantasy of uh, that he's going to win brownie points or sort of you know as Anthony Beaver puts it in his book, put the, put the final solution behind him, you know, because this is his fantasy, then, then he's, you know, he's, he thinks this is all the kind of getting the mood music right for that. I mean, it, 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 it was, of course he was deluded and it was a fantasy, but he was so, I suppose, so desperate at that stage that he, that he was, uh, you know, he was persuaded by, encouraged by Kirsten particularly to believe it, that it was yeah. possible. That I, I, you do have. I don't want to give too many things away, but it is you have this wonderful scene where he actually gets a massage. Uh, that, yeah, I mean, that's presumably that you did make that bit up, didn't you? Well, he basically he there's yes he was uh, Himmler's masseur, and that yes. was the key to their. Yeah. The reason why uh, Himmler trusted Felix Kirsten masseur so much. And in fact, uh, the Gestapo and the SS, everyone, they all hated him because of his personal connection to Himmler, you know, which took away from their power and influence. But because, but was totally because he he relied on on, on Felix Gerson so much to relieve these terrible stomach cramps he got, which were no doubt psychosomatic. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he particularly got them, he was in some dilemma or if there was a problem with Hitler or, you know, and, you know, it's, it was going to see or had seen Hitler, which, of course, both these things, you know, obtained at the, at the point in the play and he was, he was an extremist. So, so that was the entire basis of their relationship, this very close sort of physical relationship of, 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 his, of his healer. He called him, his, he referred to, you know, his magic hands that he so relied on. And so, yes, it's true, there is no, there's no evidence that there was a massage that particular night. But um, I think it's it was sort of crucial for the for the kind of essence of their relationship. You know, he always said, "Well, you're always able to massage a Jew out of me." Is a line as well that mm. I think from Kirsten's diary, which he actually said. You know, mm. so yeah, so I mean, absolutely, it's it's a huge amount of it is is, is taken from real, mm. you know, evidence from one of one account or another. Yeah, it is. I mean, I just really love that scene because it's so unexpected and yet so right. And ra rather niftily yeah. done because you've suddenly got to produce a, <laughs> a massage table, haven't you? Especially yes. The, yeah. I, I, and, yes. And and to see the man stripped down like that, Himmler, it, he oh. looks so vulnerable, doesn't he? I think. Yeah. So absolutely. And I think it's all it's all part of as well the way that Kirsten is able to to sort of persuade him, you know, by sort of getting so up close and personal. Mm. And as you say, to take off the SS uniform and, you know, so whether or not it happened that night, it was absolutely the essence of their relationship that was such a and reason why he trusted him, uh, him that trusted Kirsten so much and was so open to his persuasion. Yeah, so that was terrific. There are... Yeah, I think, I think right from the beginning, I, I knew I wanted that. Mm. Just talking about the origins of the play. I mean, you could have called the play, you know, manipulating Himmler. As a pun on minute, of course I didn't. Oh, yeah, but very you know, good. it was, Ooh, it was that. that and, and, well, I prefer the end, of, the pun on the end of the night. But it was really the idea of that image of Himmler being massaged, you know, and manipulated, was sort of central, really, to me, to wanting to put the play on stage. 
Yes, oh, and, well, as you say, you, you definitely couldn't make it up. Luckily, you had this wonderful starting point, so you could make some of it up, so that was good. <laughs> so, yeah, I still... Extraordinary... This extraordinary thing about these constant references to the Jews, as if he's supposed to... Poor old Masur is just supposed to accept that, you know, that they're this terrible power mm. and all the rest of it. Um, well, I think I've got quite a lot to go on now, haven't I? I mean, I can't think of any excuse for anyone listening to this not to want to go and see the play, actually. So, um, <laughs> I mean, it's doing well, I can, I can see. Yes, it's, ga it's, ga yeah, it's going well. Good audiences for it. And it's had a mostly a very good reception. So we're very pleased with the production. Yeah, I could feel people leaning in to catch every word when I was there, as indeed was I. And it's quite a lovely intimate mm -hmm. space, but wide enough to look like a big room. Are you pleased with the Park Theatre as a space? It's the absolute, we all thought immediately this was the perfect theatre for it, because it, as you say, it's very, very intimate. And it's all about, really, with this play, actually, and with my last play, most of my plays indeed, when you kind of want to feel that you're in the room overhearing this secret conversation. Yes, that's the whole point, isn't it? But we are eavesdropping. I did get that feeling. It was clever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Right, so I, dare I ask what's next? Well, I, I, you can ask, but I, I have an absolute superstition about that uh, oh, okay. I am writing something but about talking about it until it's absolutely ready, in case I... In case I uh, Case I put myself off. <laughs> no, no, I completely. So that's my, that's my little secret. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I completely respect that. So I think it's just nice to know that you're writing the next big thing. Yes, no, I am. Thank you. And this one, I mean, do they have, once it's had that first run, might it get a run somewhere else? Because you know, it's hard. well, it, it's going to go online. Oh, afterwards. good. So afterwards, so which is you know for people who are in other countries or can't get to theatres mm. or whatever. It'll do that on originaltheatre.com, who are the, the co-producers with the park. And her, in fact, during lockdown, my last play had to go online before it then went on tour. Yeah, the Sprinter of and, mm. and to London. Mm. But because uh, there was a lockdown, this was in March last year. Mm. But anyway, so so it'll do that. And uh, obviously you hope that it might happen. And several of my plays have been produced in other countries. And of course you hope that will happen but we'll just just have to see that's in interesting i should just ask you as one has quite a great deal there have been some really good things that have come out of the absolute horrors of coronavirus haven't there sort of or positive let's call them positive rather than good this whole thing that you can operate online as well because not yeah. everybody can literally be in the room where it's but happening absolutely i mean it's funny because when we we kept having to move the tour of my last players in device uh Kim Philby Graham Greenplay, and then eventually we were going we were supposed to start a tour in Shelton, and that, that couldn't go ahead because of another lockdown. And but they did let us film it there. But the producer had great, he tells it amusingly, he had great trouble persuading me to allow my play to go online first. Mm. But mm. <laughs> and he had promised that he would then do it, take it on tour, which he then did, and and then we did it in London. So, but actually, I was pleasantly surprised with with the way they filmed it. They really they did a really good job on it. And I think this play as well actually will lend itself. Several people have told me that I think it will lend itself quite well to being on screen with the close-ups and all of that and, and the sort of, you know, and the music. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it, that version. Of course, I still think it's better to see it and it is better to see it ideally in a theatre. But it is very nice with people that one, you know, when they, you know in the, the fact that so many people in other countries can, can then see it as well. Or people who for whatever reason, just can't get to the, to the theatre. So as an additional to the play being on stage, I think it's a, it's a good thing. And people have come, got used to, with things like NT Live, people have got used to 
to watching plays on screen as well. And you can you can watch it on your television. You don't have to watch it just on your laptop, you know. Oh, I've never watched anything on my laptop. Always on my television, actually. Yeah, exactly. So, so you you watched some uh, online theatre, did you during during? Oh uh, my goodness, it was a lifesaver. Yes. I yeah, mean, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and it, I think it has that has helped people. Of course, the ideal is to see it live, but it but it still can be a very worthwhile experience to watch online. Yep. Well, I'd already been watching right from the word go. I'd watched NT Live, even if it was something I'd seen. Possibly, mm. it just so worked because of the close-up. And people kept saying, "Oh, so I suppose they just set up a camera." Now I actually covered mm. it. I wrote, did an actual feature about how mm. preparation for NT Live, of doing this performance with different cameras in taking out seats, and there'd be the camera, mm -hmm. and they they would reblock it for the for for that. Actually, they actually reblocked yes. it for for NT yeah, Live. They, they, they do. They do. As you say, it's not the old days when they would just sort of have you know, a couple of hours of medium long shot, as they say, and stick a camera at the back mm. of the theatre. They, they really do do it really properly now. Yes. And they've got, they're particularly, they're real leaders in it. In fact, this company, Original Theatre. Yes. But they just won, they won an award just at the Critics uh, Critics Awards in London for their work in, in, in lockdown. Yeah. Their, their online work. So, and they, so they're, they're very good at it. I've been watching everything they've done, and yes, it's t totally well deserved. If it says original, mm. you think, well, I better watch that then, don't you? Yes. So, <laughs> but I was just so pleased to be literally in the room this time round, I have to say. So, more power to your elbow, or whatever you write with, not necessarily your elbow. <laughs> and thank you very much for sparing me all this time, Ben no, Thank you very much for inviting me. You're talking to me for Jewish Renaissance, for Jarrow Out Loud. It's been a real. They say a pleasure and a privilege, but I do mean it. I don't mean empty words. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Bless you. Bye. You've been listening to JR Out Loud. For more podcasts and info about our events, magazine, and features, head to jewishrenaissance.org.uk.